Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bitcoin in Asia from Bitcoin Magazine. I'm John Riggins, and our guest this week is Australian, Hong Konger, and Bitcoin entrepreneur Dave Chapman. Dave is the executive director of the publicly listed BC Group and its subsidiary OSL, one of Asia's leading digital asset platforms. OSL recently became the first recipient of approval for Type 1 and Type 7 licenses from the Securities and Futures Commission in Hong Kong, allowing them to operate virtual asset trading platform and deal in securities. It is a significant step from Hong Kong regulators and the result of a very intentional approach from OSL. Dave and I discussed that process and its significance, uh, the history of BC Group and OSL, trends that he sees in institutional adoption and more. It's a good conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Additionally, support for this podcast comes from Paxful. Paxful believe that Bitcoin is more than just a digital currency. It's a new way of life. It's going to completely disrupt the global financial system. Paxful is a people-powered marketplace for money transfers with anyone, anywhere, at any time. Using over 300 different payment methods, you can buy and sell Bitcoin using bank transfers, cash, and even gift cards. With borderless transactions, the ability to start a business, and opportunities for social good, Paxful is set to change the world. Create an account today to get your free Bitcoin wallet and begin trading right away. You'll never look at your money the same way again. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dave. All right, Dave, welcome to the show, man. Good to talk to you. Hey, very good to see you, mate. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, if you're a mate, that's, that's always my favorite, uh, favorite, favorite one here. <laughs> it, yeah, it means I'm relaxed. We're I'm, allowed to, I'm allowed to call you, mate. Good deal, good deal. Well, for those who aren't quite familiar with you yet, or, or uh, you wouldn't be calling mate in person, what, uh, can you give us a kind of a brief intro of yourself, brief background of how you got to Bitcoin, what you're doing now? Sure, sure, John. I was born and raised in Brisbane, Australia. Had always taken an interest in computing since a, a very young child. Uh, I spent my life growing up with computers, computer games. Was fortunate enough to be one of the first to be using uh, dial-up modems, initially to connect to bulletin board services and then ultimately to the internet in late 1994 early 1995 okay. long before long before a lot of other people were using the internet i moved to i was thought of you as a finance uh, guy not not a, not like a native uh, computer computer geeks that's, that's interesting to hear cool uh, the, well the, yeah the, the the geek started from very young and then, and then the, the, the finance came later i moved to sydney after high school to pursue an it career and then subsequently finished a, a degree full-time whilst also working full-time before moving to London in 2003. I think as a person in my early 20s, I was very quickly drawn to the attractive remuneration that hedge funds and investment banks were offering. And so whilst working in a traditional IT role, I was actually self-studying materials on the most popular trading systems that I could somehow <laughs> locate myself or, or persuade others to give me. <laughs> um, there, was, there, there, was, there was nothing particularly special about this material. There were simply the, the system and operational manuals for the trading software that was being leveraged by hedge funds and investment banks at the time. And it was as a result of educating myself through these manuals and admittedly a little bit of luck, I actually secured a role in a small hedge fund in London. And from there, I progressed my career through a number of very large investment banks ranging from trading system consultant positions through to trading systems architect positions to finally a head of front office development position with HSBC, which subsequently took me to Hong Kong in 2010. Mm. It was, I think, in two, late 2012 that I discovered Bitcoin. And in 2013, I decided it would play a significant part in the new world of finance and uh, alongside two others, Namely, my, my business partners, Ken Lowe and, and Hugh Madden, we collectively left 
our investment banking compliance and, and risk careers behind us to play with magical internet money. <laughs> Yeah, it was so good to see that. It's good to see that turn back in the uh, advertising on of the kind of advertising campaign. Hashtag magic, magic internet money is one of the taglines there. Yeah, I mean it's a lot of fun, right? I mean that's 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 what it was coined as. Pardon the pun. Back then, I think that that's still some people are still quite fond of using that term because still to a lot of people, the idea of transferring value between two people anywhere in the world without a without an intermediary, it's still quite magical. So we left. I left. So myself and and, and Ken and here we all left our respective our respective careers in investment banking compliance and, and risk. And our first business was a privately owned, a largely self-funded Bitcoin exchange. It was a pretty interesting period back in 2013, especially given the strategy of most of our competitors was to raise you know 10 to 20 million US dollars, and then adopt the, the Twitter model. That is, you know, attract as many users as possible to your platform, worry about monetization later. And as a result of this, most of our peers were actually offering all those services for free. So we very quickly had to find ways in which we could provide a point of difference, charge at least some fees to recover our overheads and survive. But ultimately, we, we did just that. We survived. As for our competitors, some survived, but most did not. From a regulatory perspective, uh, we self-regulated and we operated in a manner of which we believed would be necessary if we were regulated. This was much to the disappointment of the crypto community. We, you know, we, we were one of the first venues to implement a KYC and AML policy, which, John, as I'm sure you can appreciate in some ways, that goes against Bitcoin's libertarian roots. We also maintained a dialogue with the relevant regulators and industry bodies in, in Hong Kong and, and abroad. As a result of, of ANX ultimately becoming successful, and by this time having a small but growing team of staff and team members behind us, we ventured into a number of other ventures. One of those uh, most successful subsidiaries was an OTC trading desk that we formed in 2016 called Octagon Strategy. Octagon Strategy very quickly became one of the largest OTC trading desks in the world. And this was largely owing to the fact it was just providing a very professional service to high net worth counterparts, early adopters who were looking to trade in large size uh, of, of crypto. And it also maintained formal banking arrangements with banks both in Hong Kong and abroad. And you know, that was an achievement that was no easy feat back then. And it was really due to our approach towards compliance and AML that we were afforded such. You know, people look at crypto exchanges and having fiat on-ramps and off-ramps. And now, uh, whilst it's still very much an achievement, doing that you know, three, four years ago, the banking sector really was not at the same level of comfort, if, if, I, if I can use that word, as, as what they sure. are today. And so for us, it was banking was one of the main reasons that you could be successful and to obtain legitimate banking and maintain services that were ultimately settling in the multi-million dollars of payments a day. It was, it was definitely a competitive advantage if you were able to do that. It was due, I think it, that business was extremely successful and it was towards the end of 2017 that my business partners and I took the opportunity to consider what the future of digital assets or crypto might look like. Having been on a, on a four-year journey already and having the vantage point of seeing the space mature to where it was then, uh, we ultimately concluded uh, that institutional adoption would materialize at some point. But in order to be part of that, that, that new market segment, we needed to adequately prepare for such. And that, again, really wasn't going to be easy, especially given that there was still no applicable regulation in the space. 
So in lieu of regulation, we did what, what we thought would be the next best thing. My business partners and I, alongside a very strategic investor, we took controlling stake of a listed company on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, BC Technology Group. And immediately by doing so, whatever businesses we ventured on from there would be subject to the same financial reporting obligations and exchange listing rules as any other listed company would be subjected to. We then created a wholly owned business, namely OSL, and that was a business that would focus 100% on digital assets through its offering of a digital asset of prime brokerage, a digital asset exchange, a digital asset custody service, and then finally a software as a service business that would extend all of those technological capabilities I just mentioned to financial intermediaries, wealth managers, brokers, banks, and others. During that same time, we also sought to eliminate all the reasons that had historically prevented institutional adoption. So we appointed a big four auditor across the entire group, instilling mm-hmm. a trusted level of auditability as a testament to our own proven technology and our approach to bank grade compliance. We were also afforded Asia's first 100% insurance on our hot wallet infrastructure. And then finally, the real icing on the cake for us, John, was whilst we were undertaking what were, at least for us, monumental tasks, the Securities and Futures Commission in Hong Kong, you know, this is the equivalent of the SEC in the US, came forward with very innovative licensing for the digital asset space, which also actually covered uh, security tokens. And mm-hmm. it's, it's these new licenses that are a significant game changer to the entire digital asset space. You know, put very simply, it's this new regulatory clarity that provides the playbook and the protections for traditional finance and professional investors to enter this space. So uh, I've talked a lot. <laughs> I'll take a second <laughs> to breathe and uh, yeah, yeah. see if any of that was, was interesting. For sure. No, you covered, covered a lot of ground there. Maybe let's let's start kind of at the end of what you're saying. So, and one of the reasons I want to talk to you now is is because you've this licensing that you're talking about rolling out, having just rolled out, and OSL being kind of the first recipient of kind of the go ahead for a couple of these licenses. Can you talk about those two and uh, why they're kind of significant now, and sure. then what it kind of allows you to do on the institutional side, on the and then uh, you know, on the security token side, which you mentioned. Maybe talk a little bit about why you see kind of potential on that front too. Sure. I mean, the, the licensing is significant because firstly, you know, there are, there are pockets of regulation in, in, in the wider virtual asset space that have emerged. Uh, some of it is innovative. Some of it is probably not fit for purpose. And so whilst we've seen innovative regulation appear in, in other jurisdictions, it's now mm-hmm. a very strong view that this license from the SFC in Hong Kong is undoubtedly the most comprehensive license to date. If you look at what happened with regulation specifically in Hong Kong. You know, the monetary authority stated that Bitcoin wasn't money. The SFC years ago stated that it certainly wasn't a security or future. And the Customs and Excise Department wasn't really interested in, in, in regulating it either. <laughs> and then what happened in, in 2017 is the, we had the ICO boom where this Kickstarter on steroid type technology emerged and it was fantastic for raising capital. There was no faster way to raise capital than to conduct an ICO. But the reality was it was used by a lot of bad actors and there was a lot of unregulated securities being afforded to the market. And ultimately, we saw the bubble, we saw, we saw it pop, and, and ultimately a lot of people lost a lot of money. But, but the interesting thing with ICOs is that the technology worked and it, it worked fantastically. And what we saw since then is we've seen people try to take that, to that technology. They're trying to embed it and wrap it around regulation that in a lot of ways, isn't fit for purpose. And we were fortunate enough to be in a region that identified 
that security tokens and security token offerings will be a thing of the future. And so the SFC wrote not only very comprehensive regulation for security tokens and virtual assets, but we're subject to the same type of obligations and regulations that someone who is licensed to deal in traditional securities would be. Mm-hmm. And so this is a, a very new and innovative licensing regime that covers virtual assets, you know, i.e. like Bitcoin, Ethereum and, and other public blockchains. But it also focuses on that, that security token element. And we've been afforded uh, approval in principle for both type one and, and type seven activities, type one dealing in securities and type seven automated trading services. So providing a, 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 a digital asset exchange for, for these type of, of, of services. So extremely excited to be afforded the first approval in principle for these licenses. Very excited that the regulator was innovative enough to you know, regulate not only virtual assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum, but also security tokens. And whilst that narrative of security tokens has been used for quite some time, the dialogue interactions and, and deals that we're frankly securing as a result of this security token play is extremely positive. And whilst you know some of the participants and banks that we talk to, they're not suggesting for a second that this is going to completely replace their existing capital raising mechanisms like, like their IPO businesses. But what we are mm-hmm. hearing is that they do believe that there is significant advantages to security tokens. They, they will offer or complement their existing capital raising businesses through a number of ways and be a lot less frictionless, uh, a lot less overhead, you know, an expanded market that they can offer that these, these security tokens to. And I'll be the first to admit, it's going to take time, but one of the major sticking points that was preventing the security token narrative to kick off and thrive was adequate regulation. And for, for us, we've definitely secured a first mover advantage in Hong Kong through very innovative regulation afforded to us by the Securities and Futures Commission. Yeah. And, and there have been kind of rumors about who the first company would be to you know get this licensing. Go ahead. Mostly you kind of heard about a couple of maybe mainland China exchanges were, were, were kind of in the lead and then started to hear kind of recently that probably going to be all, which is interesting. And I think that kind of speaks to one of the things that's been impressive about your, your journey is that you kind of made a bet on that you know, regulatory compliance, kind of institutional future focus early on when it wasn't really, uh, you know, wasn't didn't seem like the easiest move back in 2016, 2017, right? Yeah. Everyone's going mass market. You have those kind of finance phase of crypto exchanges popping up and dealing in you know ICOs and growing large retail bases and whatnot. But you make the kind of decision, hey, we're going to focus on the future of this institutional side and yeah. focus on the regulatory side for that. And maybe kind of one of the first case studies for you and seeing how the potential of that would be was rolling out Octagon and the success there. Can you talk a little bit about the process of rolling out Octagon? And we, you know, we hear about kind of OTC desks out in Asia and you know, a lot of it's maybe peer-to-peer, not quite as regulated as we you know, would imagine it is. Can you talk about how kind of you set up Octagon in the first place and kind of some of your learnings on the regulatory side, institutional side back then? Yeah, maybe how the, sure, sure. Yeah. Sure, John. I mean, Octagon, we're going back to the, to the, the privately owned businesses that, that have nothing to do with, with where we're at now. But Octagon yeah. strategy was really created out of demand. We saw an opportunity to service a market that wasn't adequately being serviced, or at least not adequately being serviced by enough participants in that space. And so again, from a compliance and regulatory perspective, there was no regulation back then that was suitable. And mm-hmm. so for us, it was really obtaining the, the, the trust from our banking partners that would allow us to operate a business at scale. If you are dealing in, you know, back then, multi-million dollar transactions and needing to settle very quickly, 
if you do not have reliable banking partners that that provide you a, a relationship well fully well knowing that what you're engaging in i.e you're in you're in the crypto space you, quite put frankly you don't have a business mm-hmm. the, the crypto to crypto model back then wasn't particularly huge as it is today and so for us it was uh, seeing an opportunity and, and and seizing that but i guess you know if i was to relay some similarities as to what guided us to here it was it was being able to work in a market that just was desperate for professionals to work in mm-hmm. the space to provide trading service agreements that that underlined and 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 was very descriptive as to how the process works what happens when something goes wrong who is liable and accountable when when things go wrong and back then it wasn't really something that was that was seen and so that was starting to pave the way and it was sort of sort of starting to paint that picture in our minds that institutional adoption was going to materialize we were starting to see the very starts of of that activity back in the privately owned business days and it was really starting to plant you know the, the seeds as to what ultimately decided us to start a completely unaffiliated venture uh, and taking controlling stake of BC Technology Group and ultimately creating uh, you know OSL and and starting businesses from a whole i think that the, the, the what i can say uh, about OSL and how that business has really changed i mean if you look at the product offering that OSL uh, affords the, the first business unit is is our prime brokerage and this business provides the same services that you'd expect from a traditional prime brokerage however unsurprisingly in, in digital assets and so mm-hmm. the prime brokerage affords you know over the counter block trade services still you know in, in terms of that that, that that category of service it provides electronic trading through a request for quote style mechanism some parts of our business provide otc options and derivatives swaps uh, borrowing and lending services and so it's as i said it's very much a prime brokerage offering that you'd expect from a morgan stanley and we fully anticipate that for professional accredited investors traditional licensed financial intermediaries it's that type of service that they will demand and insist on in addition to a slew of other services such as exchange and custody and and whatnot so it's interesting how quickly the space has changed despite it being at least 7 years for me and my business partners it, it has changed quite dramatically and you are right when we moved you know from the privately owned businesses into this new and unaffiliated group you know we we really have gone we have foregone retail revenues to focus on this longer term strategy of preparing ourselves for regulatory adoption institutional participation and just the overall growth of this market and so you are right we had a decision to make was whether or not do we focus on retail where you know you and I both know that this market is and has been historically dominated by retail or do we position ourselves to this next wave of adoption this changing of the guard and being uh, very well positioned for for that to happen and frankly super excited for what the future holds for sure and that taking over bc group and being public list was kind of the burn the boats moment if you will for that kind of move can you the decision making for that process and kind of the additional scrutiny that goes with that you had been you had gotten you had been the second maybe the first group in asia maybe second in the world to be, have insurance for your custody product maybe around that time before that or did that happened after the public listing um, it happened so, after after yeah after the public listing so so you're taking on all of this additional kind of scrutiny what can you talk about the kind of process of also kind of scaling up a team that needs to be more professional in that sense so i was, I was looking at your website 
not not long ago and just was seeing all these you know names and you know backgrounds of people that I hadn't seen before so it's been interesting to see kind of the growth of your management team and kind of the professionalization of it can you talk about the process of your, you know yourself hiring that team and building that out yeah it seems like a most of jump and indeed and it's also it's been interesting or fascinating to watch what's happened over the the space of you know seven or eight years if you if we were trying to get peers from our previous investment banks come work with us, it was way too much of a risk. They were yeah. like, you know, what, <laughs> what are you doing? There's absolutely no way I'm leaving a, a respected investment banking career to come and, come and, come and work with you guys. Um, but, but what has happened as this asset class becomes recognized, as regulation, regulation takes place, and as we're starting to see financial household brands start to stake their claim in this space, the sector becomes more sexy. The sector starts to become, this is actually pretty cool. And it's all those stepping stones that, that has allowed us to actually have a, you know, the strongest management team that we've ever had. Every member of OSL's management maintains significant experience in traditional licensed financial or legal household brands. And whilst this reinforces the DNA of OSL, it's also a very telling sign of just how quickly this industry as a whole yeah. is maturing. You know, in, in, in a few years ago, it was reasonably difficult to attract talent. And nowadays, it's a, it's a very different story as we see many executives and talented individuals uh, moving into this new and recognized asset class. We have a, a, a graduate training program, and it's interesting to see who else they've applied for. You know, and there, there might be some investment banks, but they're number one, is to join OSL, you know, it's uh -huh. the, that digital yeah. asset exposure that they're looking for. Yeah, you know, it's quite ironic. I don't think investment banks are going away. They definitely think that they play a respected part in the, this ecosystem. But that being said, it is very much, it is very much changed, and it's maturing very quickly. And for us, yeah, super proud of of the team we have here. We have a, we have an absolutely dedicated team that that span across you know twenty four hour time zones and and whatnot. And it's been one of the one of the most one of the most rewarding aspects of this position is to have built a company from three individuals to now, I think, 140 employees spanning different time zones and having a super, super dedicated and, 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 and committed team. It's been a fantastic sure. journey. Yeah. And when you say that, you know, in the past, people may have, may have kind of looked at you side-eyed and said, wow, this is too risky. I mean, that, that was the case. So you started out in 2013 and kind of a lot of your peers, probably 90% of them, to your point, are no longer operating. But you all kind yeah. of were able to bust your butts and work your way through some bear markets. And now you're kind of in this position, which is cool to see. So kind of now, as you seen that kind of influx of institutional kind of talent, wanting mm -hmm. to you know, join out to yourself in the space, have you seen kind of on the kind of funds coming inside? What are you seeing kind of trend-wise there? Maybe in the past, yep. when we talked about kind of institutional money, it was more crypto hedge funds and things like that. What are you seeing from yep. kind of mainstream institutions in terms of interest and kind of volumes to you? Yeah, I mean, for us, I think institutions represented nearly 80%, I think it's 78% of our digital asset trading volume for OSL in, in the first half of, of 2020. Our interims were published in August and the first half of 2020 was a period of exceptional growth for us. The digital asset revenues are up 47% year on year and digital asset trading volumes are up 420% year on year. Your viewers may also find it interesting that over the past six quarters, we've seen consistent consecutive increases in our digital asset trading volume. So we're breaking records and increasing that, that, that level of trading volume every, every quarter. And we're seeing the, you know, we're, we are also seeing significant increase in 
the number of counterparts we're onboarding, especially from a, a corporate and institutional perspective. Mm-hmm. And we're also seeing the number of active clients that are trading also increase. But to, to get back to your, your question with respect to who are we seeing that, that would fit into that sort of traditional finance or that professional accredited investor or that institutional type demographic, it, it does vary. We certainly service a number of regulated funds, a little bit different to <laughs> the, the, the old days in 2017 where every man and his dog was offering a, a fund uh, and a basket of, of all these latest ICOs. Fortunately, we're not yet seeing that with DeFi, <laughs> which is a good thing. It's still too technical. So no one's grandma is getting hurt in the process, which is uh, very refreshing <laughs> for us. But we, are, we do, as a result of, of having a custody service that is audited by Big Four and insured and, and providing the type of bank grade controls we do, we certainly do service a number of regulated funds and they do play a part in, in the makeup of our demographic um, we still also do service, you know, professional accredited investors who trade significantly on a short-term day-to-day basis. But m- probably most interesting for the the viewers today is just the, the dialogue and the interactions that we're having with traditional finance. You know, we, contrary to popular belief, uh, a lot of these external public-facing messages from these banks is, oh, we're not getting involved in digital assets. You know, without naming names or revealing anything that they can't, I can assure you that behind the scenes, a lot of the banks are scrambling and, and mm. some of them are making terrific, terrific progress. I mean, we've seen, you know, State Street, Nomura, Standard Chartered, Fidelity Digital Assets, you know, even JP Morgan is providing banking services to the two largest regulated exchanges in the US. I mean, the times are changing. And I, I think with, with you know, the increasing amount of, of regulatory clarity that the, that the world is seeing, combined with the you know, political, economic uncertainty and the unprecedented phase of what, what the world is going through with COVID, Bitcoin and digital assets aren't, aren't that crazy anymore. And mm-hmm. it's also been spurred on by other involvement or you know, new entrants coming into this space. You know, back in the day, you know, digital assets were really referred to as electronic documents, images, MP3s, and, and electronic videos. And then with the birth of Bitcoin, we saw this digital assets term encompass cryptocurrency. And now with the emergence of central bank digital currencies, like the DCEP initiative in China that's being production trialed, like the asset-backed tokens and stable coins and payment initiatives such as Libra from, with Facebook, and with Security tokens, you know, the ability to tokenize a, a traditional security in a digital format. That term digital assets is, is getting significantly larger. And so a lot, there's not that, you know, that not, there isn't that, that real taboo that Bitcoin had, you know, at least from when I started to get involved in, it in 2012 and 2013, where anyone who wasn't accustomed in, in any shape or form thought that you were either a drug dealer or doing very malicious things by even mentioning the word Bitcoin. Nowadays, you can have a very mature discussion with pretty much anybody in your network, whether they're accustomed with Bitcoin or not. And when you were, if you were to tell them that Bitcoin does form a reasonable you know, component of your portfolio, you're no longer considered crazy. It's more so that well, that makes sense. The world's a pretty crazy place right now. And well, well, I think that that... Yeah, and that's where I think Bitcoin and, and other digital assets like Ethereum and, and whatnot are, are really going to shine. I think, you know, obviously Bitcoin is subject to extreme volatility. That's nothing new. Bitcoin has, you know, is starting to get 
further global uh, adoption from a regulatory perspective. We're seeing institutional adoption. We saw that the Nasdaq-listed company, MicroStrategy, purchased $250 billion worth of Bitcoin as as one of their treasury reserves exercises. I think- About getting more? Not even yesterday. Oh, really? There you go. (laughs) It's not even, I think, uh, that is something that's going to become the norm. That is something that's going to become much more mainstream. And with a rising population of, of individuals that are born digital, this is, this is actually no longer going to be something that, that is shied away from. It's going to be embraced. And, and fortunately, I think everyone that's, that's viewing you know, our podcast today, I think they're in a very, very fortunate position to be alive because I think it's going to play a significant part of, of what, what comes next. Sure, for sure. And you talked about kind of some of the ways that Bitcoin is viewed back in, say, 2013. Mm. And maybe, you know, some of the some of the things that got you interested in being, you know, in starting a business in the industry were some of the potential of where it could go. And now we've seen it really get to kind of a point of, you know, acceptance and faster than maybe we even thought it could. What, what else are you kind of thinking about or how else is, how is the way that you think about Bitcoin changed over the past seven years? And you're, you're talking about it now as, as, you know, companies are starting to put it on their balance sheets as, hey, this is something that's worth investing in because of the macro environment. How how is the way that you think about Bitcoin changed as the macro environment shifts over the past seven years, and as you've seen kind of the industry institutionalize? I guess any other thoughts on that? Yeah. I think for, for for me, John, I probably probably already discussed that point with the fact of that you can actually have a conversation with anybody now, and and they one they know what it is, they also are aware that it's going to play a part in in the new world of finance. They're largely aware that there is regulation being formed around this space, and I think you know it, it's coming very thick and fast. And I think that that's an exciting phase of, of, of never going back. Probably wraps it up as a whole. I'm super bullish on Bitcoin. I'm, I'm super bullish on, on other aspects of, of digital uh, adoption uh, as a whole. And, you know, you know, Bitcoin just survived the largest financial crisis in its 11-year existence. And it did that without any circuit breakers and without any government or regulator intervention, uh, no quantitative easing. And without any economic stimulus to help support its recovery or longevity of the underlying network, and and again, Bitcoin just does what it does. It chalks this up as another test defeated, and it adds such a feat to its many battle-hardened scars. And I think the other interesting phase that has accelerated that, I won't say adoption, I'll probably say acceptance, is the, just the unprecedented amount of quantitative easing that's happening right now, and people just starting to become much more educated on the way that traditional finance works. You know, I'll certainly be the first to admit that until I had started working for investment banks and I'd seen, you know, I was working with Bear Stearns when it collapsed. I was working for Barclays when they were uh, through the LIBOR fixing scandal. And uh, I've worked for other, other banks during other activities that weren't particularly things to be proud of. I'll still admit I, I didn't, the fastest and most eye-opening way for me to become more educated with the continual failures of the traditional financial system was actually getting involved in Bitcoin. And I, I don't think I'm—I don't think that's unique to me. I do think that a lot of people, when they start to, you know, uncover what is Bitcoin, they start to peel the, the, the layers away. It's really like, oh, I now understand fractional reserve uh, banking. I understand why the, the failures have occurred. And by no means am I as you know, I don't want to use the word radical. Uh, no, by no means am I as 
you know, I wouldn't even call myself a libertarian, but, you know, I do respect and appreciate the libertarian roots of something like Bitcoin. I do appreciate both the advantages, but also the risks of change with decentralized technologies, even outside of Bitcoin. Um, I think decentralized technologies and, and other things that don't have this central intermediary control is going to play a significant part, not only just with Bitcoin and finance, but people and what they expect and who maintains this control transparent voting these all these different fundamental elements of our lives that have always fallen foul of of central intermediary control and as i said like it love it or loathe it things are changing with technology things are happening really fast but we're also fortunate to live in an era of time where you do have innovative regulators that have acknowledged the fact that the world is changing that decentralized technologies aren't going away you still do have regulators in some jurisdictions, completely trying to still ban decentralized technologies like Bitcoin. It's, it's a, it's a, they, they will fail uh, at doing that and uh, it'll normally make it harder for themselves. And so for some of us in this space, we're fortunate to work with innovative traditional financial intermediaries. We're fortunate enough to work with innovative regulators. In some places in the world, we're, we're not that fortunate. But I think over time, you know, this place and the future in general is, is actually looking very bright and very exciting. Oh, all well said. And then, you know, you've spoken highly of Hong Kong's approach to regulation in this in, in this space. Geographically, where else you're operating? I know you all have a large presence in Singapore. Can you speak yep. at all to how other regions in Asia, parts, places you're operating are handling uh, or, you know, sure. approaching regulation? Sure, John. So as you mentioned, we do have offices in, in Singapore. We have been grandfathered under the new Payment Services Act, which covers digital token payments, which is uh, governed by or afforded and regulated by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. And there are differences in the licenses, obviously, as, as you, you uh, review them globally. For us, the bar was set so comprehensively high in Hong Kong that really any regulation or any license that we would, would, would want to go forward globally to apply for I, we, we think that there's a, there'll be a, a lot of that heavy lifting that we can we can lift and shift and apply to to others. So it's mm -hmm. fortunate that we've 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 undertaken that route. From a perspective of who does OSL service, we uh, whilst we're headquartered in in Hong Kong and we do have offices in Singapore, we also do have uh, a presence in 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 the Americas region, and we're also starting presence in in London. So we're starting. We are a global company. We operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with the ability to settle 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which is quite a unique capability. So for us, we are a global firm. We operate in, in the regions that we're allowed to. There are certain regions in the world that do require a specific license to uh, target some demographics in those regions of which we are fully um, appreciative of and, and, and do not enter. But for us, the home market in Hong Kong is, 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 the, is the big win. But we continue to look at other regions where there is an opportunity to expand and, and grow. And using that unique software as a service capability where we can extend our technological capabilities potentially through a partnership in other regions. We will continue our strategy of, you know, dominating markets where we have a right to win and strategically partnering with others in markets that we frankly don't. Yeah, makes sense. And you talk about some of that, you know, expansions from the competitive aspect of operating globally. When you think about kind of the competitive landscape of, you know, y'all are in a, you'll play in a lot of different fields on the technology side, on the Prime brokerage services, you know, the, those things. How are you thinking about kind of your competition? You're talking to a lot of more, you know, institutional players who are kind of, you know, maybe starting to dip their feet in internally, building out things for this. Do you think about kind of legacy institutions as your next 
kind of level of competition? Or are you thinking about them more as partners? I, obviously, it, it uh, depends on who you're talking to. But how do you think about kind of yeah. the future of the landscape there? Yeah, I mean, entering into and offering digital assets, I mean, it, the, it comes with an enormous amount of challenges given just how new the space is. And if we're looking at traditional financial intermediaries, they're acknowledging the fact that the asset class is here to stay. It's very quickly being regulated and there's an enormous opportunity. That being said, it is difficult for a very large bank or financial institution to upskill, aqua hire potentially, and provide the necessary technical capabilities and processes to, to be able to offer crypto, for, for lack of a better word, in a safe, regulated, compliant manner. And so for us, we've, we've done all the heavy lifting. And so when you talk about some of the, the competition, I mean, we have a number of traditional financial household brands that have entered into the custody space. That's, that's great. I love it. It's, mm -hmm. it's fantastic. I think that they're doing a fantastic job. Have we seen anyone enter this space and provide direct access to Bitcoin for their millions of customers? No, we haven't. And I am very confident that, that that's going to uh, take place. And so for what, when we talk about legacy financial institutions and competition, not really used in the same sentence. For us, uh, we see that as our, as our, as our client base. Right. We afford, afford them the, the, the tools to undertake and, and, and use proven technology in a, in a platform that meets all of the regulatory obligations, meets their compliance approval, and frankly, really meets their material outsourcing arrangements. So you do have other people in this space that are providing software as a service capabilities. Are they mainboard listed? No. Uh, are they big four audited? No. And you know, it's it's positioning our firm to be able to counter on board and interact with you know traditional household financial banks, brokers, wealth managers, and, and family offices that provides us a, a very much a competitive edge. And it's taken a long time for us to build. But uh, now it's live, it's in production, and we're very excited to you know, potentially make some very big announcements before year end. Yeah, so sounds like a great position to, to have set yourself up to be in. A lot of work that went into it, publicly listed aspects, uh, insured aspects, big four audited aspects, maybe the only company that sits, has, sits in those three buckets in the digital asset space. Correct. Good to, good to hear you discuss and, and kind of hear the vision for how it's going to play out. All, all cool. Uh, any other kind of predictions on the the Bitcoin side? More next <laughs> next twelve months. What do you think? What do you what, want to make any bold predictions on on where we sit with Bitcoin? Uh, I've been burnt a couple of times. I was I, correct, I correctly predicted that Bitcoin would hit ten thousand when at the time I think it was around uh, three thousand. I, I went live on Bloomberg Television and made that prediction. Yeah. And somehow yeah. <laughs> somehow somehow I managed to pull it off. Probably more through <laughs> luck, through uh, than than technical or fundamental understanding of what was really going on. I subsequently also made a, a very wrong prediction. Uh, you know, I think six months later on on CNBC Squawk Talk, if I can remember correctly. And so I don't. I, I tend to shy away from making price predictions. Well, what I will say is that I remain super bullish on, on, on Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and other digital assets. I do think that Bitcoin is doing what it's doing. I, I, I also do think that this entire ecosystem is going to grow as a result of what I said before, this digital assets ecosystem expanding and, and, and becoming wider than, than what it's been for the past few years, just being cryptocurrency with the introduction of the central bank digital currencies with the you know asset-backed coins like libra and and with security tokens as a whole i think it's 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 
it's not a very exciting prediction for me to say you're going to have a trillion dollar asset class in the next 12 months. I'm absolutely certain of that. But I mean, that's not that's not a very bold prediction given the given the basket of, of everything I've just thrown in there. Mm. But w- what I will say is with the introduction of central bank digital currencies and with initiatives like Libra specifically, we at that's going to accelerate the adoption of, of crypto or digital assets by a decade. It just will. It will change consumer behavior and their perception of using something as a payment rail or a settlement mechanism that isn't in their native domestic currency. And it's also digital. And then so, you know, there's been a number of massive behavioral shifts in consumer behavior over time. I mean, we, 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 we used to pay in, in gold and then we went to paper notes, then we went to plastic cards. And then we sort of have gone digital with mobile payments to a degree. In China, it accounts for 80% of all payments. So they've definitely done it there. We had contactless payments, you know, that was for some people had never used contactless payments, but then COVID forced that upon them because they didn't want to touch what is called dirty cash. (laughs) And I, I personally am a very strong believer and I can state with conviction that we're going to say consumer behavior change as a result of central bank digital currencies as a result of you know this 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 libra initiative and with the result of asset backed stable coins and whatnot it's you know as i said it, it will just change consumer behavior from going from hey i live in hong kong therefore i have to spend in hong kong dollars to okay well this is something that i accept as as currency you know money is a belief system and whether what your views are on facebook is irrelevant when 30% of the world's population use Facebook, WhatsApp, Oculus, or Instagram at least once per month. The reality is, is you're probably going to accept currency that, that comes in the form of that because everyone in your social network uses it. And to be honest, that, that experience of paying someone for dinner through WhatsApp, unfortunately, is going to trump anything that we have with Bitcoin today. But what that will do is it will gradually, but with very fast momentum, change that consumer behavior. So when someone does say, hey, I'll pay you in Bitcoin, okay, well, that's an asset that's supported by my wallet. I already have that supported by my wallet, therefore, sure, I'll take it. And then it just starts to slowly move us and accelerate that immensely fast than what it has so far. When you try to pay someone in Bitcoin today, well, what is it? How does it work? How do I lose it? You know, I've heard all these bad things about the media. I need a wallet that supports it. A lot of that goes away when all of a sudden they're looking at their Libra wallet, or the Calibra wallet rather, or they're looking at the, the interface that supports central bank digital currencies. And it just so happens that Bitcoin's there. I think that's probably uh, something I'm very excited about in the future. A lot of people, I'm sure you heard as well, John, when Libra was announced, it was like, oh, this is the Facebook killer. Uh, for me, I was, I was excited. I was delighted because I knew it would accelerate the, the consumer behavior needed to accelerate the adoption of digital assets. Yeah. And, you know, Great point on the consumer consumer behavior aspect. And then you have you know companies like Square, you know digital uh, wallet companies, Cash App, one hundred percent, Bitcoin first in terms of how they're approaching yep. us. So super bullish exactly. for those things, indeed. And then uh, to close out, a, a recommendation. So you're you're out of Hong Kong now. It can be a a book, museum, food, a uh, place to see. Give us give us a recommendation Ooh. for folks who are maybe going to be in Hong Kong at some point. <laughs> I mean, there's so many favorites in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is by far my favorite uh, city in the world. Yeah, and you've lived in Brisbane. Here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's quite good. I've been here ten years. I don't have any thought of of leaving anytime soon. In terms of recommendations, my go-to when I have visitors 
arrive and they want to try traditional food. I mean, there's so many different places that I could recommend, but one of the favorites is a place called uh, Underbridge Spicy Crab. Underbridge Spicy Uh, Crab. And and Underbridge Spicy Crab, it does a great fried crab. You will be prepared uh, to make a mess and end up with (laughs) half of it down your shirt. Uh, it comes completely. It comes washed down with uh, very, very cold, very cheap beer. But it's it's always an experience. And uh, anyone that uh, is watching and wants to visit Hong Kong, by all means, hit me up, and I'll be more than uh, more than happy and delighted to take you with me. All right, I'll, I'm going to take that one to heart too. I haven't had to <laughs> there. And then how how can people kind of follow you? Follow OSL. Sure, uh, that's a very good question, and it's one I always negate to to mention. For OSL, it's pretty easy. It's osl.com. Fortunately, domain. You're a three-letter domain, <laughs> indeed. Uh, for for our Twitter handles, uh, they're, they're all pretty much osl.com or, or applicable nature, but they're all available from osl.com webpage. For myself, uh, my, Twitter hand, my Twitter handle is very, very not creative. It's I am Dave Chapman. Uh, <laughs> right. And yeah, I, I, I'm not particularly as frequent Twitter tweeter as, as, I, as I might should be, but uh, you can generally definitely always find me there at some point. For sure. I, I like the I am. That's, that's a little, <laughs> little bit unique. And you know, whenever you, whenever you do choose to say something, it's, it's worth, worth taking a look at. So it's nice to have those Thank accounts you. that don't clog up your feet all the time, but then say nuggets of good stuff every once in a while. <laughs> that's very kind of you to say, John. Thank you. All right. Well, great talking, Dave. Good to catch up and, and hear how everything's progressing. So it's all, all fun to hear. Thank you very much. And thanks for all your viewers. And thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. For sure. A quick reminder, all of the content in this episode is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments.